if you and I ever see what God is like, really see, we'll worship. If you see that God is good, loving, powerful, smart, kind, gracious, generous, if you see that God is like Jesus, you'll be glad that God is God. You'll honor God with your life and your allegiance, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you can't wait to. True worship is a response to God's revelation of himself. Worship does not originate with an impulse in us, though I think there is such an impulse. We were made to worship. But it doesn't originate there. It originates with a revelation from God. And God is always revealing himself. But humans are not always capable of taking in his revelation. I sometimes read the, one of the original, or try to read one of the original Winnie the Pooh stories from A.A. A. Milne to my six-month-old grandson. Now, they are wonderful, witty stories. Go out and buy, I don't care if you're 80 years old, go buy a copy of them. Not the golden books. Throw those out. Go get the real thing. You know what? Little Finn doesn't understand what I'm reading. He doesn't laugh at the funny parts. He misses all the jokes. While I'm reading, he tries to gnaw on the cover of the book. About all he gets out of reading with Grandpa, I think, is a sense of closeness and security and maybe a little teething time. But as he grows, he'll get more and more. He'll start to laugh at the funny parts. He'll get the jokes. He'll appreciate the characters. The book will open itself up to him in greater and greater depth. All the joys and the pleasures and the humor and camaraderie are already there. But Finn isn't there yet. And it's just so with us. There is more to God than we can possibly take in. But we can take in more and more as our spirits grow bigger and stronger. And as we see him with increasing clarity, our response will be worship, a life of worship. Worship can take place in a formal setting with an established liturgy. Keep that word in mind. We're going to look at that word further in a few minutes. Or it can take place spontaneously as we drive to work or we walk on a path through the woods, or we take a shower. Worship is not something we attend on Sunday mornings. It's something we do when God opens himself up to us, when he reveals himself to us. Now, before we go further, we need to talk about what worship is. And let me offer a description, not a definition of worship. Worship expresses to God the admiration that we feel for him and the submission that we intend to offer him through whatever means are appropriate. When we gather for worship, those means include songs and hymns and prayers and confessions and declarations and offerings. When we're alone, we'll make use of many of those same means, but we might use others as well. We might bow or lie prostrate on the floor or pray silently, or lift our hands and shout out loud. Whatever we do, whether together or alone, our worship is a response to God's action in the world and his revelation of who he is in Christ. Now, when I say whatever we do, I don't want to give the impression that anything whatsoever is an appropriate 
expression of worship. In the Bible, worship can either be acceptable or unacceptable. Now, I think you can shout worshipfully. I think you can sing. I think you can bow. I think you can raise your hands. By the way, raising hands, what does this mean? I surrender. I surrender. You can raise your hands in worship. You can bring an offering. You can even dance. Those things can all be done in a way that God will accept as true worship. But they can also all be done in a way that God will not accept. And that is important to grasp. Every Sunday all over the world, favorite sport is not football, it's not basketball, it's not baseball. It's judging the worship service. Were the songs good? Were they my favorites? Were the musicians competent? Was the sermon interesting and inspiring? Some of my friends, quote friends, were once planning on sitting right here in the front row, and I think this was during the Olympics. And as a joke, they all brought white cards that they were going to score cards they were going to hold up at the end of the sermon. 6.1 or 8.6 or whatever. Now, they were just goofing around. And yet, people really do sit in judgment on the worship service. But here's the thing we have to understand. We sit in judgment on the worship. God sits in judgment on the worshiper. If singing, bowing, shouting, dancing, raising hands, giving offerings can all be acceptable, what then is unacceptable? doing any of those things with a heart that is far from God. Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. I don't accept this worship. God rejects worshipful words, even the ones that we sang today, when they come from a hypocritical heart. We might think the most important thing in the service is whether we accept the worship that the people on the platform are offering, but far more important is whether God accepts the worship that we're offering. The worship that God accepts is offered through Jesus Christ in his name on the basis of what he's done. The spiritual sacrifices we offer are acceptable to God, this is 1 Peter 2.5, through Jesus Christ. That is, they become part of or they are subsumed in his offering. Trying to come to God without Jesus is like trying to swim without water or fly without air. He's the medium through which we come to God. Or the biblical word would be mediator. God also rejects worship that is grudgingly given. Read the book of Malachi for that. Let me give you an example. If we give an offering, not because we choose to, but because we feel pressured into it, which I hope no one at Lockwood will ever feel, but because we feel pressured into it, or we only do it because we're afraid of what people will think if we don't, if worship is grudgingly given, God will not accept it. But if the willingness is there, this is the Apostle Paul, the gift is acceptable. If the willingness is not there, the gift, no matter what its monetary value, is not acceptable because it's not worship. It's something else. A song that's sung to satisfy the singer's addiction to praise, 
or a song sung by a person whose heart is far from God, even if it's sung perfectly, even if it moves us to tears, is not acceptable worship. It may sound to us like the song of an angel, but it sounds to God like fingernails on a chalkboard. Another condition of acceptable worship is this. It's inspired by God's spirit. Paul describes an offering acceptable to God as one that has been sent, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes what we're offering, and that could be money, but it could be a song, a prayer, a confession, whatever it is, and he helps us set it apart for God. We aren't singing for ourselves, to please ourselves or amuse ourselves. We're not giving for the sake of our reputation. With the Spirit's help, we're actually doing this for God. God, this is for you. So understand that not all worship or all the things that go by that name are acceptable to God. Your worship today may not have been acceptable to God. That's a sobering thought. Only worship that is offered through Christ by the Spirit from a willing heart is acceptable. Now, worship can come from a very immature heart and still be acceptable. It can be presented in very unorthodox ways and still please God. It can be polished or clumsy, cutting edge or old school, off key or harmonious, and God will still accept it if it's offered through Christ by the Spirit from a willing heart. In Romans chapter 12, Paul calls us to a reasonable worship of God. And he bases that call on the revelation of God's mercies. I want to read that for us, but I want to give us context by starting the reading, not at verse 1 of chapter 12, but by going back to verse 33 of chapter 11. You can follow along and, or just listen as I read. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is the God who knows about butterfly wings in South Africa. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him? And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, perfect, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, verse 1. Therefore, that is, on the basis of the mercies of the God who knows everything about everything, the God for whom everything, including you, exists, therefore, in view of that mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We've been talking about worship. So is Paul. This is worship language. The word the NIV translates as offer and other versions as present is in this context a worship word. Paul is calling us to worship God by presenting to him an offering just as his people in the Old Testament did. The central act of worship in the Old Testament was the presentation of an offering. 
a lamb, a bullock, a dove. But since Christ's one sacrifice on the cross was offered, our worship does not center on the gift of a lamb or a bullock or a dove. It centers on the gift of our own bodies. And by that I mean our embodied lives. Since the resurrection, God has required living, living, breathing, thinking, planning, working, giving sacrifices. Before the sacrificial death of Christ, people presented God dying sacrifices. But everything changed when Christ rose from the dead. The sacrifices God now accepts are not dying ones, but living ones. He wants your life, not your death. He wants your presence, not your absence. He wants you as his person, his servant, his child, living for his interests in your family, your neighborhood, your school, your workplace. All our other worship offerings, the sacrifice, for example, of praise or of money or of good deeds, all of which are worship offerings, Hebrews 13 tells us, All the rest of our worship offerings acquire their meaning. They become worship when they're connected to the gift of yourself to God. If you give your songs or your money or your good deeds without giving yourself, you haven't worshiped. When Paul tells us to present our bodies as a sacrifice, he means exactly that. He intends your body, your hands, feet, eyes, mouth, brain, to be given to God. He wants your embodied life. Too often people think that they can give God something called their spiritual life and then be done with it. If you ask them what they mean by spiritual life, they'll have a hard time telling you. They'll talk about, well, you know, prayer and and Bible reading every day and and going to church and thinking positive thoughts. That is not what this passage is about. And it's not what God wants from you. Sorry, you can't give God your spiritual life while you keep your work life and your school life and your leisure life and your recreational life and your social life for yourself. That is not a living sacrifice. It's a comfortable delusion. The sacrifice God requires is not something that can be completed in a temple or a church building or even in a prayer closet. It happens at work, at school, during leisure, during recreation, and in social settings. God doesn't want your spiritual life. But he does want all of your life to be spiritual. The person who makes a living sacrifice... Ask questions like, how can I be God's person here at work? What are his interests here? What does he want me to do? How do I serve God at school? What does he want done? How do I serve God's interests among my acquaintances, my family, my friends, on my social network? Now, I said that Paul is using worship languages in these verses. In fact, he uses five more or less technical terms from Jewish worship. We already looked at the first two, the word offer and sacrifice, the word sacrifice. Next come the words holy and pleasing, which are echoes of Old Testament sacrificial terminology, without blemish and a fragrant aroma. 
The word holy is used over a thousand times in the Bible. It's one of the most commonly used words in the Bible. It has the idea of something that has been set apart from its routine purposes to serve God. The word pleasing, literally it's well-pleasing, means that God takes pleasure when we offer ourselves to him. It is really possible for creatures like us to please God Almighty. You can be, in Lewis's words, a real ingredient in the divine happiness. The God to whom and through whom and for whom all things are made can be pleased with you. When you present yourself, your whole self, your embodied self to him, to be his person wherever you are. The last of the five worship words is the one the NIV translates as worship. Sometimes it's translated differently. There are two principal Greek words that are translated worship. One has to do with the attitude of awe and reverence with which we approach God. It's primarily about what's on the inside as we come to God. The other, the one that's used here, is the Greek word latreia, from which we get our word liturgy. Lighter gaze. It has more to do with what's not on the inside but on the outside. It describes the physical service performed in a religious ritual. It's used more than a hundred times in its verb and noun forms in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, frequently to describe the work of the Levites and the priests in the temple. It depicts the kinds of things that religious professionals do. Now, you see what Paul's getting at here? He is saying that God has moved religious service out of the temple and into the world through our real, embodied, everyday lives. This, the presentation of our bodies for his service in daily life, is our spiritual act of worship. The word translated spiritual is the Greek word logikos, which could also be translated as reasonable. This makes sense. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus used this Greek word in a very memorable way. He said, if I were a nightingale, I should sing as a nightingale. If a swan is a swan. But as it is, I am logikos. I'm a reasonable, rational being. Therefore, I must be singing hymns of praise to God. In the light of God's mercy seen in Christ It's the most reasonable thing in the world for us to offer our bodies to God for his service. It just makes sense. But I don't have to tell you that the rest of the world does not think that living as a sacrifice makes sense. The people that you work with and play with and perhaps live with have a very different idea of what makes sense. They think it makes sense to live for yourself to make it your ambition to live in a fine house and drive a new car and arrange your life so that no one ever has to tell you what to do. It's never occurred to them that life might be about holiness. They think it's all about happiness. They never dream that they're here to please God. They think they're here to please themselves. And they not only think these things, they constantly consume them in books, movies, TV shows, magazines, on Facebook, and through a thousand different media. The modern world 
with its vast communication network, functions as a virtual injection mold machine, unceasingly pressing people into its particular mold. So the world tells people the most important thing is to be yourself. People who have no idea who they really are. Over and over again, it tells people, people who at terrible cost to family and friends are addicted to feelings of sexual excitement or escapism or pride, it tells them, you've got to please yourself. That's what life is about. And unless we're very alert to it and protected by God, we'll be squeezed into the same mold. We'll think like everyone else and we'll miss what life is about. That's why Paul, in the very next sentence, warns, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Or as J.B. Phillips famously paraphrased it, do not, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Unless we're very careful and unless we're protected by God, that will happen to us and we won't even know it's happening. Our only hope is to go on and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That verse implies that we have already been conformed to the world to some degree, perhaps to a high degree. We have been squeezed into the world's mold. We're starting off at a deficit, and it would require a total lack of self-awareness to deny it. But there is hope. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. If the person who makes a living sacrifice doesn't go on to be transformed, I can guarantee that he or she will sooner or later be conformed to the world. That's why some people seem to make a really great start, a real genuine start with God. They're on fire for him. Sometimes they even think about committing themselves to ministry, to missionary service, or the pastorate. And they mean it. They really do. They want it. But in a few years, all of that is just a memory. When they look back, they think of it as their spiritual phase. It seems odd to them now that they ever thought that way. Those are people who didn't go on to be renewed in their minds. Transformation didn't get far enough to keep them out of the world's mold. Unless a person is being transformed into Christ-likeness, he or she will be conformed into world-likeness. If you're not becoming more and more like Christ, you're becoming more and more like this world. Or literally, like the age in which we live. If you're going to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, you're going to have to go on and be renewed in your mind. And if you're going to be renewed in your mind, it has to start by presenting your body as a living sacrifice to God. Those things hold together. Now, do you see what this means for worship? It means, among other things, that you can't come to church once a week or once a month or whatever, living a conformed to this world life and expect to worship. Worship gets interrupted. It's cut short. It miscarries unless it ends with the presentation of our bodies to God for his service. Anything less falls short of authentic worship. And unless we go on to be renewed in our minds, the living sacrifice will crawl off the altar and we will cease to present our bodies to God. Now, 
One last word about this worship act of presenting your body as a living sacrifice. If you don't know that you've made this offering, you probably haven't. This is something a person does intentionally and consciously. We don't grow gradually into it. It doesn't happen without our knowledge or consent. You choose to make this sacrifice of yourself. And I call you to choose it now. Present your bodies, your hands, eyes, feet, mouth, brain. Present your embodied life to God for however he chooses to use you. And then when you're able, maybe this afternoon or in the next couple days, you may want to get literally down on the floor and slowly and intentionally present your physical body to God. Not metaphorically, but literally, one part at a time. Give him your hands to use, your eyes to see, your mouth to speak, your ears to hear, your brain to think. Give him yourself for his service. That is the essential and consummate act of worship. It is your spiritual act of worship and your reasonable service. Let's worship God. Let's pray. God, help us who have not made this sacrifice to do so by your grace. Through Christ the power of your spirit. And Lord, for those of us who have done this, grant us the grace to live it out. Not just to talk about it. And we ask for this in Jesus' good name. We're going to stand together and sing, and as we sing, men who are going to help us with communion, would you come to the front, please?